Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. Welcome back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we have two very special guests to interview, Angela Cartwright and Bill Moomy. Well known to Lost in Space fans as the talented young actors who played Penny and Will Robinson, both performers have had successful show business careers before during and after their time getting lost in space. In fact, between the two of them, they've gone on to play numerous roles in dozens of movies and TV shows, racking up hundreds of appearances on both the big and small screen. But if that wasn't enough, these gifted go-getters are also multi-talented artists in a wide variety of creative fields. Angela's lifelong passion for art and photography led her to pursue a second career as an artist, as well as a jewelry and clothing designer, eventually establishing her own art studio, which can be explored online at angelacartwrightstudio.com. Bill Moomy, on the other hand, has also achieved fame as a gifted musician, singer, songwriter, voice artist, and producer. In addition to his prolific catalog of solo songs and recordings, Bill was the co-founder of the offbeat rock duo Barnes & Barnes and a veteran member of the band America. In his recent musical endeavor, Bill teamed up with musicians Vicki Peterson of the Bangles and John Coswell of the Beach Boys to write and record as the rock group Action Skulls, who've released two critically acclaimed albums, 2017's Angel Here and 2020's A Different World. What's more, Both artists are published authors. Angela's titles include her award-winning coffee table book, Styling the Stars, Lost Treasures from the 20th Century Fox Archive, and her art books titled Mixed Emulsions, In This House, and In This Garden, among others. Likewise, Bill's lasting fascination with comic books propelled him into a career creating and writing scores of them for both Marvel and DC. And in the early 1990s, he authored many issues of the celebrated Lost in Space comic book series for Innovation Comics. With all that going on, it's hard to believe this talented twosome have also co-written three other terrific books. Their first was their fantastic pictorial chronicle, Lost and Found in Space, followed by On Purpose, a sci-fi adventure novel for young adults 
And now, their latest collaboration, the updated and expanded edition of their beautiful photographic memoir, Lost and Found in Space 2, for which, by the way, they will announce a special offer to Alpha Control listeners at the end of this interview. But first, as you can imagine, I've got a lot of questions for both of them. So get set to blast off for this fascinating conversation with Lost in Space stars Angela Cartwright and Bill Moomy. Hey, uh, Angela Cartwright and Bill Moomy, thanks so much for being on Alpha Control. Wow, this is a real delight. Hi, Lane. Alpha Control, can you read me? Alpha <laughs> Control. <laughs> they seem to be Hi, leaving Lane. our galaxy. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. I wish, uh, wish that we could. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's funny. Don't worry, Dr. Smith, we'll be all right. <laughs> Oh, no, this is just a, a real treat for me. And it's a double pleasure because normally I don't get to see the people that I'm interviewing. It's all done over the phone or Skype. But uh, thanks to the miracles of uh, modern Zoom technology, we're actually doing this by uh, like a video conference call. So I can actually see the people that I'm talking to. And you both look great, by the way. Oh, so it's nice to see you. Like your background there. That's that uh, brings yeah. back some memories. Yeah, I'm playing with all the features here. I'm trying to get <laughs> trying to get my money's worth out of this Zoom thing. But uh, hey, I want to start off by saying, obviously, you guys have big news. You've got a brand new book that you've just released in the last couple months here, and it's doing great business, I hear. And I just want to establish my Lost in Space fan credentials right off the bat and say, you know, hey, oops, it's it's zonking out on me here, but I've got the book, Lost and Found in Space 2. I don't even think I said the title. But, so yeah, I'm re- blast off into the expanded edition. There it's it is. autographed and all, folks. So Here it is. <laughs> if I do that, I think it'll disappear into the ether there, but uh, into the fifth dimension. There you go. I got that one. Autographed. Right. And it's a keeper. It's a real keeper. But, you know, I'm just not a Johnny Come Lately because I actually have the first edition as well which basically it's out of print, the first edition. But I was doing research and, uh, you know, you can't find this book anywhere. I was just wondering if you guys have an extra case of them lying around the first edition, I might take it because there's a guy selling a copy of that for almost $5,000 on Amazon right now. <laughs> Look it up. I kid you not. Wow. <laughs> I just might have a few. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I can find some. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the interesting. Cat, the cat's out of the bag. You can't find it on eBay. You can't find it on BNN. No place. So that's uh, definitely a collector's item. And I think I may have to buy a couple extra of this next one because I'm sure it's on its way to being a uh, collector's item. But this book couldn't have come at a better time. I mean, after the last couple of years with everything we've gone through, you know, the pandemic and of course, uh, you know, to the Lost in Space fan community, the passing of Kevin Burns was a real blow. I'm sure that affected both of you, didn't it? Oh, the pain. Absolutely. Yeah, it was uh, really so sad. Uh, he's always been an advocate for us and uh, helped project, you know, the the show forward and the Netflix show and this book because he actually was behind us reviving this book and adding so much more to the original one he had a lot of new pictures and we talked Mm. about it you know before he passed away he said oh my gosh i've got all these pictures i've got all these things so much has happened you are both in the netflix movie all these things should be added and so during the pandemic that's what bill and i you know we did we 
did a lot of uh, behind the computer um, writing this book and coming up with more written word for it. Loss of Kevin reverberates, you know, on a daily basis. It, it's a huge, huge loss. And um, if it weren't for Kevin, uh, most everything that has happened with those three words lost in space over the last 30 years, mm. uh, if not for him, they probably wouldn't have, have occurred. He was a great champion of, of the series and the cast and, and every way you can imagine. But um, we did want to... Uh, include uh, many, many, many new stories that had never been told before in this book. And of course, we had discovered a, a huge cache of unseen photographs that needed to be shared. So the new book is a good thing. The world is in a sad, sorry mess, unfortunately. And right. if you can escape from that mindset by uh, kind of letting your thoughts drift back to a lost in space time, it takes you out of reality for a little while. And that's a nice vacation. Wow. Well, that's well said. Well, Lost in Space was an escape itself, right? I mean, that's, uh, right. you know, we're all looking for a way to take a breather from reality every now and then. And Lost in Space sure fit that bill. But it's not a joke to say it's expanded. I, I think it's got something like 160 new pages over the first edition, something like 600 new images. And you were talking about the cache of photographs. I want to ask, Angela, photography has been a passion of yours since I think the time you were on Lost in Space, maybe even before, right? Yeah, my parents gave me a really nice Nikon camera when I was uh, 15, and I was just hooked from wow. then on. My dad wow. was a photographer that kind of did it kind of as a hobby, kind of not. But yeah, I love taking pictures, and I still do. Yeah. So the pictures that are in this book, was the Source Kevin or the Irwin Allen Archives? And what kind of state were they in? Were they prints, negatives, slides, all of the above? What were you dealing with to put this together? Well, the thing about this particular upgrade uh, book, um, there's a lot of personal pictures in there, uh, pictures that both Bill and I took of each other and on the set and at conventions and, you know, things that we went and celebrated lost in space. So there's like 900 pictures and images in this book. It's almost twice as big as the first one. We had a lot to say. We had a lot yeah. to say that we didn't say the first time around. And um, we realized there's all these stories and kind of never before told tales. And that was what Bill and I really explored. And we had the time to do it because we were, you know, home. And it just kind of just came out as being so expanded. And there's a lot of pictures people have never seen before. Oh, there sure are. Well, one of the things is both Angela and I are uh, not hoarders, but, you know, <laughs> things have not been tossed out over the decades. And another thing about us both, which I think is interesting, is I've been in my home for f for 45 years. Mm. And uh, Angela's been in her home for close to 40 years. So, you know, you have these things that are just piled up in the garage or in storage spaces around the house. And because we were pretty much in lockdown mode, it gave us the opportunity to explore <laughs> lost <laughs> items, so to speak, that we hadn't seen in decades. So I found so many uh, little tchotchkes and really rare uh, collectible bits from from Lost in Space, various script things and call sheets and notes. And Angela found the same amount of stuff. And uh, because we were pretty much not going out, we really uh, scavengered through our, our collections and found a lot of stuff that we didn't even know we'd still had. 
Oh, it's amazing. And I ended up with boxes of my parents, you know, clippings and uh, photographs that they had kept. And I, you know, they both have passed away now. And I really haven't been able to emotionally kind of go through those boxes. Mm. And I did start to do that. And I found a lot of stuff in there. And, you know, Bill's such a collector of, of memorabilia also. So, you know, both of our parents did a really good job, I think, of keeping stuff. Now, I don't know what's going to happen when we're gone. I'm sure our kids are going to love that. I mean, there's just stuff, you know. It was kind of really cool to be able to put it in the book. The stuff that came from Kevin was digitally copied. Sure. Um, and, you know, we just scanned our new stuff. So it's really high quality, most of it. And then there were some pictures that fans and stuff have sent us over the years. You oh, know, really? From the conventions and things like that. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. What else is interesting, I think, is the fact that, you know, although the series ran for those 84 hours and three years, our relationship continued for decades. I mean, we stayed in school together after Lost in Space. Then we were a couple after Lost in Space. Then we were estranged. And then we were connected again with these personal appearances and, and reunion projects. And uh, so the book is not just about the three years that the series was created, but it really is also our individual and collective stories as the two of us, because we've intermingled in a lot of different categories as people. Yeah, it, no, it's remarkable. It's like you've had a lifelong relationship with Lost in Space, and you've had a lifelong relationship with each other. It's so cool that you've stayed friends and that you're so close uh, to this day. And in fact, it seems like the entire cast is close, you know, and, and that's a beautiful thing to see. I did get to meet you all at a convention in Boston back in 2018, and you could pick up on that right away. So that's something nice. You know, they always say, be careful when you meet your heroes, you might be disappointed. Yeah, that right. was not the case with you four. That was, uh, yeah, it was great. That was some convention. <laughs> I think we were all like, oh my God, that was a big convention with like how many thousands of people? That, that was a bunch. Up? It, Whoa. It was, yeah, it was, it was wacky. You know, but I want to say one thing before I forget. She'll skewer me if I don't. Lisa, my wife, she said this book is like uh, Disneyland. You know, you open it up and you find something new every time you go in there because the way it's laid out is so cool. And the pictures are beautiful, like you said. Of course, this is hardback and the first edition was paperback. So there's an upgrade right there. But she says, I love the paper. You really didn't spare any expense because it's really high quality all around. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We were happy with the way it printed. Yeah. And you know, the cast really is family. Both of our careers go back many years before Lost in Space, but I haven't really known very many projects where the cast has bonded as permanently as the group from Lost in Space has. Beyond the sense of us doing personal appearances and reunion projects for financial gain, Mm -hmm. uh, we've always stayed connected as friends. You know, Marta Kristen lives in here in L.A., and, and we've gathered with her nonstop for 50-some years. Uh, June Lockhart has always kept us together via cards. And, you know, she used to take us to rock and roll concerts. Mm -hmm. And Mark is like a brother. He lives on the East Coast, but I talk to him all the time, and we we really are one big dysfunctional family. Oh. One thing that surprised me out of all, well, there are a lot of surprises, but I had no idea that Mark Goddard was such a funny guy. <laughs> he is, he, it's dry, but I mean, he is, he is, a, he is a character, isn't he? Oh, my he's, God. He's a never grew up. <laughs> yeah, he's one of a kind, and, and I love Mark. And even when I was 11, 
there was this kind of fraternal energy between Mark and I. My mother absolutely loved Mark, but I always kind of felt like I was the big brother. <laughs> and he and he was he was the kid brother. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, it was fun. Mm. Well, you know, this book is a pictorial memoir, and I thought maybe it might be fun to just take a look at a couple of pictures here and there from your book that might jog your memory. I had a couple questions for you if you're game here. Let me see if I can share this. I'll describe it as we go. And you're talking about the cast. So why don't we just start off at the beginning here? This is a very iconic color cast publicity photo. Who's that new guy down there? (laughs) Oh, I can take myself out of the picture if you... (laughs) Funny. Yeah. This is a great picture, isn't it? It's a classic. This is the classic Lost in Space picture. Everybody in those spacesuits. Yeah. This is probably the one you conjure up when you think about Lost in Space. July 1965, stage 11 at 20th Century Fox, the upper deck of the Jupiter 2. Those silver spacesuits were basically like firemen and race car driver suits. They were made out of heavy, heavy canvas, uh, very hard to sit back in. And as you'll notice, the robot's claws were still silver right. because that was during our black and white season. Uh, and they didn't paint his claws red until the second season when we went to color. Look at that set. I mean, this is so impressive. I don't think anything like this had been seen on TV. You know, of course, we're spoiled today with they're spending millions of dollars per episode on the new Netflix series. So it's not a a fair comparison. But was it as impressive to you standing there on that set as it was to us watching it on TV? I think it is a fair comparison. I think that all of the foundational props and sets of Lost in Space were uh, masterpieces. I mean, that set, the... the, uh, the flares that went between the freezing tubes, the astrogator, uh, the mm-hmm. control systems, the elevator, which was functional, uh, everything that Irwin put into the, as I said, the foundation, the Jupiter two, the robot, the chariot, the interior decks, the, uh, and to a degree, although it looks kind of funny sometimes now, the wardrobe. I mean, it had a very one-of-a-kind personal design lost in space. And uh, Irwin Allen spent a lot of money to get his initial projects launched and done correctly. And as things progressed, season two, season three, you know, uh, he got a little cheaper. But his initial launches were always very, very impressive. And, and just I was reiterating. Just say, we, we did share our aliens with Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. Uh, they <laughs> painted them a different color. But I don't think he ever wanted to be like cheap. He had a vision for what Lost in Space was going to be. You know, when we had the full spaceship on the set, you know, with the dirt on the the set and we walked down those steps and uh, very expensive dirt, dear. <laughs> <laughs> only you only the I finest mean, dirt. But we were on a set. I mean, and and then there was this full size spaceship. I I mean, I look back on it and I was very impressed with the whole thing. It felt like home for one thing. We spent so many hours on it. And, Mm. you know, our our costumes the first year, very, very uncomfortable. I'm looking at Bill with his arms, you know, on his hips. And I'm thinking, God, if you did that for more than five minutes, it stopped the circulation in your arms. I mean, it just did. Um, They were, it was just so stiff. It was like having on a cardboard suit, but then they came out with LeMay. That whole thing is, they explain that in the book. Um, And then we got new spacesuits. 
I wish I had taken a few of the foam rubber rocks of the alien campsite home with me. <laughs> uh, good in your they're probably, yeah, they'd be very collectible today, I'm sure. Yeah. Yep. Well, that was one of the fun things when you went to color. Everything had to be a wild, uh, vivid color, but it pops, you know. Color TV was new. They were going to get their money's worth. And Erwin had to pay more to go from black and white to color. And he's basically betting on the fact that he's going to be able to get this show into syndication. So he's trying to be smart about this whole thing, is the way I understand it. Oh, he was a regular Barnum and Bailey kind of a guy. And he was certainly smart. <laughs> You know, his career for the next 15 years or so after Lost in Space proves his acumen was on track. It's interesting also to note that, you know, Lost in Space, it falls in that mid-60s era of pop art. And when the culture of the entire planet, basically thanks to the Beatles, was changing so rapidly globally. And, you know, the colors that you see in Lost in Space, seasons two and seasons three, are just psychedelic, really representing that short period of time. Plus the music, as we're discussing the finer points of Lost in Space, the music cannot be underestimated. The themes by John Williams and the other composers and the full orchestras that were used to uh, score the series Brilliant. Very, very wonderful stuff. It really helped the series in every possible way. You don't have to sell me on it because that uh, 12 CD set of the original soundtrack is sort of like my Bible because we we reference that quite a lot when we're doing our episode reviews. It, It is so iconic, that music. And I think John Williams himself was quoted as saying, you know, Lost in Space is sort of his training ground for doing the music for Star Wars and Indiana Jones and so forth. It's uh, absolutely beautiful. You have to start somewhere. Uh, We were very lucky to get him, though. Oh, yeah. I definitely hear similarities in in certain cues from other John Williams scores that harken back to Lost in Space. You go, wait a minute. (laughs) Wait a minute. And to (laughs) me, you know, uh, Mark Hamill is one of my best friends. But Mm. I will say that the the trio of Luke Skywalker, C-3PO, and R2-D2 always reminds me of Smith. Will and the robot, you know, there are similar qualities there. I mean, C-3PO is so Dr. Smith. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. You know. (laughs) Oh, forget about it. And this is something my buddy that when we're reviewing the episodes, we comment on this all the time. I mean, there are literally scenes from Lost in Space episodes that are almost frame for frame redos, like the uh, Jupiter 2 being sucked into the derelict spaceship. Is that not just like the Millennium Falcon going in a tractor beam into the Death Star? Um, Absolutely. I mean, Dr. Smith is always saying, wait for me, C-3PO. That's one of his throwaway lines, right? So, Yeah, hey, exactly. You know, they say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. So I guess you got to take it when you can get it, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let me throw up another picture here that might uh, spark some conversation here. And you can tell me, I-, I got a real kick out of this one when I saw it. Ah! <laughs> oh, my God. What episode was that? That is actually uh, from it. A- Oh, you the could, second season. No, no. Bill, do you have a guess? I can give you a well, hint. Well, it's the end of the first season. Um, it's not The Keeper yet, though, so I'm no. not sure what it is. Just because this outfit was my no, second it, season, but was it the yellow one? I it's think the yellow I one. Yeah. Shows in the yeah. yellow one. Yeah. Right. I'll give you a hint. You've just seen, a, of all things, a werewolf. Ah! <laughs> you keep okay. hinting. And the werewolf's, the werewolf's name was Keel with a family of hillbillies. It's uh, from the space oh, oh. croppers. 
Oh, oh with, with, okay. with Sherry Jackson. Sherry Jackson and yeah. Mercedes uh, McCambridge. But of course, Angela had worked with Sherry Jackson when she was really, really little on the Danny Thomas show. And Sherry Jackson was just turbo gorgeous, wasn't she? Woo. Absolutely. Oh, she's she's killer. And she's an alum of three of my favorite shows from the era, Lost in Space, the original Star, Star Trek, Trek, and Batman. Right. She was on, she yeah. was a guest star on all three of those uh, series, yeah. which uh, is an indication of that she must have been in high demand. You know, this, this yeah. move here where Jonathan is using both of you uh, uh, as human shields, more or less, that's kind of one of his signature moves. It's very funny and everything, but I don't know if you remember this or not. I've always wondered, was this stage directed or was this something that Jonathan came up with on his own? Do you have any idea about that? Oh, it, it was all Jonathan. Smith, after the first three or four episodes, was completely Jonathan's design and architecture from the dialogue to the comedic reactions to mm-hmm. the alliterative insults to the robot. Uh, Jonathan whittled what was the original Dr. Smith into the Dr. Smith that we all remember. You know, he always wisely explained that Dr. Smith was originally such a snarling villain that he probably would have been written out of the show one way or another if he had carried on in that nefariously dark way. So he's turned him because he wanted to keep a gig. And that's the truth. Wow. No one loved Lost in Space more than Jonathan. No one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we all loved it, but nobody was a bigger fan of the series than Jonathan. And nobody appreciated the success of the show more than Jonathan. And he was gracious and he was gregarious mm. and he was almost what you saw in the character uh, certainly not the cowardice and, and the uh, screaming kind of guy, but he was a bigger than life character for real. He had created the persona of Jonathan Harris. Right. And then Jonathan Harris created the persona of Dr. Zachary Smith. And in some ways, they were very much the same. I always remember when Jonathan sometimes would get the biggest kick out of some of the silly thing that he had had to say. And he goes, this is ridiculous. I mean, he absolutely loved it and totally was professional, knew what he was going to say, knew his lines, was a very giving performer to act with. And he, you know, kudos to him. He made Dr. Smith what Dr. Smith was. That's um, true. He was funny. I loved him. Call yeah. me Angelino. Yeah. He was a, he was great to work with. Wow. Totally love Jonathan and what you know when I, I don't know why he was given carte blanche so early on within the season to completely rewrite his own dialogue but he was and that's a subject matter that I can't explain why that was given to him that amount of freedom creative freedom but I would memorize you know my scripts on the weekend and I would go into work every day prepared mm to uh, to do what was written in the script. And uh, a lot of my work was with Jonathan. And before uh, we would go on set, the second assistant director would pull me out of the school trailer, but take me to Jonathan's dressing room. And, and Jonathan would say to me, let's go over the scene, Billy Person. <laughs> and I'd, I'd say, yeah, I know it. He goes, no, you don't. <laughs> And, and he'd say, forget what's in the script. I shall say, and then I shall say, and then I shall say, and then you shall say your line. 
Okay. And then I shall say, and I shall say, and I shall say this, and I shall say this, and then you will say your line. I'll never <laughs> and, forget, uh, too, that we had pages and pages that were different colors because they would keep the additions would be new pages and they'd be bringing them around. We'd have five or six blue pages and then they'd be pink. And our scripts were like little rainbows where they would be changed. Um, That's amazing. Well, well, you both made mention in the book that uh, he was also something of a teacher or a mentor to you. I mean, I was very touched by what you had to say about that. Uh, You know, Jonathan led by example. I, I can't say that by the time either Angela or myself started working on Lost in Space, we didn't know how to do our work professionally because we certainly did. But Jonathan, by example, reminded everybody that this is the way you want to be. Every day he would treat the crew at four o'clock to uh, a sweet treat, usually a Tootsie Roll pop. Mm. Uh, And the thing about Jonathan, as opposed to some other actors, he never came to work unprepared. Jonathan was a one-take guy. And that doesn't mean he wasn't happy to do it another time or two if needed. But you know, Jonathan, when it was time to work with Jonathan, he was ready to go. Mm. And, uh, you know, that was really, I think, one of the reasons why the show shifted into so much of his character, because he really saved the directors and the cinematographer and everyone else on the crew a lot of time. You know, sometimes it doesn't matter how famous you might be. Sometimes people come to work and they kind of know their lines or they're kind of in a good mood or they kind of know what they're doing. But, you know, it takes them five or six things to to find their groove or get into it or do a take that is acceptable. Not with Jonathan. He was always pretty much a one-take guy. That's beautiful. Well, let me throw up another picture here because I can't resist showing this one. (laughs) Now, this this one is a... Another cast photo uh, staged, but it's not exactly what you would expect. It's a pretty famous picture, I think. Uh, It's more or less a takeoff on a Mad Magazine issue, isn't it there, Bill? Oh, absolutely. It was June's idea. Uh, Mad Magazine had uh, produced Loused Up in Space in 1966. Uh, Mort Drucker, the great Mort Drucker, had done the uh, artwork for it. And um, June gathered us. Mm. to pose in the expressions of the characters that had been satired and done in Mad Magazine and sent it to Mad and uh, Mad printed it in in their letters section. And it took, I guess, close to uh, 50 years for Kevin Burns to uh, add uh, Jonathan and the robot into the photograph because originally it had just been the uh, six of us without Jonathan and the robot. So it's a complete cast shot now. Based on the June had such fun putting this together. She had a wonderful sense of humor. And she, I remember it was just, we, we were all giggling. We thought it was so funny. I remember looking at the actual, uh, you know, magazine mm-hmm. saying, oh, okay, this is, uh, I've got these big cheeks, you know, and tr- how we interpreted ourselves <laughs> as the way that Mort Decker had drawn us. Uh, it was just a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I, I love doing this, and I love that shot. Yeah. Me too. That, that's great that Kevin was able to uh, pop Jonathan and B9 in there. That's, Absolutely. That's very, very cool. I hope you're enjoying our special interview with Lost in Space stars Angela Cartwright and Bill Mooney as much as I am. They've got more to share about their new book, Lost in Space, and much more. 
So sit tight for part two of our interview with Bill Moomy and Angela Cartwright. Well, you know, another thing I wanted to mention while we were talking about different people from the show is um, unsung heroes. And uh, let's look at this picture. There's old uh, B9. That's a shot of you, Bill, with the robot on the Ghost Planet from season two, which is a fun favorite of mine. That's got the cyborgs in the background there. But uh, when the show was on, nobody really knew who was inside and who was talking for the robot, did they? No, it was definitely a uh, mandated secret in terms <laughs> of wanting the network and the studio. And Irwin obviously wanted little kids to believe that the robot was a real mechanical machine and was not just a fiberglass prop with Bobby May inside of it. Uh, <laughs> nobody worked harder than Bob May. You know, he, you had to not be able to relate to the word claustrophobic to get inside that prop. Wow. Yeah. He, he, he obviously wasn't the slightest bit claustrophobic because uh, Bobby loved being inside that box um, it seriously was a very dangerous prop to be inside of. There were batteries, there were wires, there were electrical systems. If anything had shorted out, uh, you know, it was not an easy thing to get him out of that suit. It, it took a couple of guys and a couple of minutes. Mm. Bobby memorized and delivered all of the robot's dialogue, but of course, it sounded like a guy inside a you know box. It wasn't worthy of being um, broadcast that way, and also. Let's be honest, Dick Tufeld had one of the greatest voice tones, you know, in the history of voiceover artists. And uh, Dick uh, supplied the, the recorded voice of the robot. Although the years that we made the series, uh, we very rarely, if ever, saw Dick. Um, Dick would come in and overdub his dialogue on the scoring stage and uh, didn't really come to the set. Uh, hmm. So uh, Dick was a bit of a mystery, although, of course, we knew of Dick. Right. He was a bit of a mystery until we started doing reunions, and then he became a very close, almost you know, family friend, a wonderful guy. Very really family, chat. too. Yeah. yeah, great family. And and again, Bobby was worked really, really, really hard. Bobby was uh, quite a character. Well, he made you feel like that robot was really alive. I mean, some of his just the subtle things he would do, like with the little turning of the ear sensors, you know, or the up and down of the bubble reacting, and the way that uh, Jonathan played against that was just perfect. It was just uh, uh, <laughs> something to see. I mean, I, I wanted to have that robot when I was Will Robinson's age. I wanted that robot so bad. And you know, it's amazing now. There are people that actually build beautiful replicas of these things. And it's, it's just breathtaking to see those things in person. It's amazing. Yes. A B9 robot can be yours for the simple <laughs> sum of $18,000. <laughs> That's right. If you can afford it. There was Bobby a couple did create those just to give him credit. You know, he, he wasn't taught any of that stuff. He did create the spinning of, he'd bring his, his arms in and spin the torso around mm -hmm. and he created the waving arm things. He had a, a little, uh, teletype type button in his left claw that had to sync up to the neon illumination when he spoke. So for every syllable that the robot spoke, Bobby punched a little key in the claw, mm -hmm. which illuminated the red neon. And then Dick matched the flashing lights of the neon to the uh, synchronization of the voice. It was complicated. And, it was, uh, and, but you can't get somebody that, that was more committed than Bobby May 
He uh, literally was the robot. I, he took it very seriously. <laughs> more committed and more committable. <laughs> <laughs> he was. He definitely did love that robot. Oh, man. Bobby was so kooky, man. Yes. I mean, he he was really kooky. He painted the upper base black because obviously they didn't want to see any kind of like face, face behind yeah. the the plexiglass, you know, hexagon. Anyway, um, so Bobby would deliver offstage dialogue when it was someone else's close up. Uh, of course, we had a script supervisor who was capable of doing that, but. Uh, actors like to give each other that kind of proper energy. So the, Bobby would usually be delivering off-camera dialogue for the robot. Well, his son was uh, being born. His wife was in labor delivering his son. And it, they were shooting a close-up of me. And Bobby was like, no, no, I'll stay and deliver the off-camera dialogue for, for, for Billy. And, uh, you know, everybody said, Bobby, get the hell out of here. Get to the hospital and, and go be with your son. So Bobby shows up in the hospital with the black raccoon makeup on. Uh-huh. Uh, he also went to a bank one day at lunch with that black makeup on, and he almost got, you know, like in trouble because they thought he might be robbing the bank. Oh, wow. <laughs> Yeah. Angela and I used to go to lunch off lot together with our mothers quite often. And we would go to Century City, which was, you know, basically walking distance. We drove, but it was so close. Brand new at the the time. Right. To the studio. And we would go and nine times out of 10, we would be in our full wardrobe. We wouldn't change for lunch. We would just Mm -hmm. keep the velour and the bright colors on and, and go to lunch over there. And after lunch, Angela would get a, a British Invasion album, and I'd get some folk album, you know, mm. or she'd get a Nancy Drew book, and I'd get a Hardy Boy book. <laughs> but nobody ever, and this is true, we must have done that, you know, I don't know, 40 times at least, right? And nobody oh. ever said anything. Like, no, no it, it wasn't even like, oh, look. Yeah. There's Angela Cartwright and Billy Mooney from Lost in Space. There was not only was there none of that, there was not even anything like, why are you dressed like that? Nothing. <laughs> Which really tells you how weird the 60s were. Yeah. <laughs> was. Uh, we definitely were right in the middle of that one. And to this day, Bill loves velour. And what cracks me <laughs> up is velour is starting to come back. I mean, like, yeah. like velour pants. Yeah. I'm like, oh my God. How uh, crazy is that? I know, I know. Very colorful. Well, it's very right. colorful, and it was certainly part of that era with a lot of other things. Right. <laughs> you know, since we're talking about colorful uh, velour costumes and the swinging 60s, why don't I pull up this photo and get your reaction? What do you think, Angela? <laughs> oh, groovy, baby. Look at that. Yeah. yeah. Got my little garage outfit on with my garage boots and my mini skirt, season three. What did yeah. you want to talk why about? Why I had a crush on her. <laughs> yeah. Why my hair was so short. <laughs> well, it's funny. You guys got a costume change, I guess, just about every season. And I think I read in the book, you said this was your favorite of the, uh, oh, it was. Of the it, costumes. It was very comfy. The pants always had like a thing under the foot to keep them straight. You know, kind uh-huh. of like riding pants. Um, yeah, this was like a no-brainer and so fun to wear. Just a little you know, little dress, little swingy dress. Um, The hardest thing, though, during this 
particular third season was the fact that they word came down from the tower or whatever it was that my hair looked like a shawl. I had very long, dark hair, very, Mm. you know, come on, let's, you know, face it, the times, um, you know, flower power and all that. And um, I didn't want to cut my hair. So we came to a compromise where my hair was braided under that little wig every morning. Oh, okay. I had no idea that was a wig. It looked very natural, but uh, I'm not an expert. Yeah, it started here, and then I had that little bow thing. Yeah, it was just a little half wig that every morning they braided my long hair under that. That's wild. That was my favorite of your outfits too. (laughs) (laughs) Bill, you were old school. I think in the book you mentioned this was your fave, huh? Yeah, the first season uh, navy blue outfit. It's the simplest of the ones. I know it sounds ridiculous in a way, but obviously I felt that color combination went best with my complexion and my hair. Mm. (laughs) Uh, I guess the second season orange one is in a way the most iconic Will Robinson look from the old show. But I preferred the less is more simple blue velour look there. Yeah, Nobody really knew that that was blue because it was black and white, right? Right. Yeah. It's true. Uh, guys was blue, same same palette as mine. Uh, Mark's was similar, but was a much grayer blue. Uh, Jonathan, of course, originally wore that military jumpsuit, and then he switched to a, a well for a few episodes. They had him in something that was kind of yellow, and he immediately refused to continue shooting with that because it was uh, it wasn't slimming enough for him. So he went to the dark blue. Right. Yeah, here, I just threw up another cast photo from the first season. Now, this one's been colorized, obviously, but, you know, it's fun because (laughs) this actually looks like a birthday party for you, Bill. So that's cool. You got to celebrate your birthdays on set. But even though the original was black and white, this colorization kind of gives you an idea of what those first season costumes looked like, I guess. Yeah, but but the, that that outfit of mine was not yellow like that. It was more brown, brownish. Like you yeah. See in the corner there, you know where it's brown on the wall. Yeah. No, I don't know why I was in that brown. I, that was not one of my favorites. Um, but that was first season, right? So you can't really see it. I guess for black and white, it actually photographed really well. That's the thing, right? If you're if you're dealing with black and white film, I guess it does make a difference. Yeah. Well, and then second season, of course, you went to color. We saw those green, brown, yellow, and orange uniforms in that funny Mad Magazine shot we looked at earlier. And finally, here is a cast photo from the third season, and you get yet another color palette change. And now we've got all these pretty pastel purples, pinks, and yellows. Except for Jonathan. Uh, I think I read somewhere, and correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, that this black outfit was his favorite. Yeah, he wanted the black for slimming purposes. And actually, I won't say that it caused any much of a large brouhaha in any way, but Guy wanted the black. Ah. Because Guy had worn black as Zorro. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think he felt a little proprietorial about that color, and he wanted the black, and Jonathan got the black. Mm. (laughs) And my hair, see, this is a couple of episodes where I had long hair. Right. They said it looked like a shawl and said that I had to wear it up, much to some people's dismay. However, it was hip at the time, you know. Oh, yeah. 
Oh yeah. You look great. Everybody You're, looks I love great. The long hair. No, no, I was <laughs> saying the short hair. No, I love the long hair. Yeah. No, I know. I know you do. Yeah, if I had my druthers, I'd pick a, an outfit. Chris, who am I? But you know, I have favorites for each of the characters, but they're not all from any given season. So I think that's kind of neat. But it seemed like you had to have a theme every season. There had to be sort of a matching color palette to choose from. Absolutely. All, all you want to take that one, Anne? No, go ahead. You have a thought. Uh, once in a while, all <laughs> of the uh, all of the costume designs were done by Paul Zasputnevich who was very much Erwin Allen's right-hand man in design of everything. He didn't Mm -hmm. build any props, but he had a great visual sense for the way everything should flow together. And Paul was the one who designed all of our wardrobe. And uh, the relationship between Paul Zasputnevich and Erwin Allen was very similar to uh, (laughs) Mr. Burns and Smithers (laughs) on The Simpsons. (laughs) I, I say that with love and affection, but it's absolutely accurate. It's very true. But Paul had a, a, a sense of the design and he wanted things to flow the way he did. And Irwin trusted him explicitly. When I was writing the Lost in Space comic book, as you said, Lane, I tended to uh, ask the illustrators to uh, do a melding of different seasons of wardrobe for the characters. I, too, had my favorites that was a... Uh, you know, a mishmash from what we had seen before. So, yeah, I think you're right. That's funny. No, it's very cool. And I'm big on the costumes because I kind of notice that things. I always point out what the what the aliens are wearing, too. And they tended to recycle a lot of the alien costumes. You know, the, the Keeper outfit would show up a couple of times. And the uh, ruler from the challenge seemed to show up a lot on different aliens with you slight little twists. Look with all the... Uh, That's why I love it. ...pictures in there. Because I'm a big continuity... Uh, wardrobe picture gal. I love them. I love behind the scenes. And those were shot, you know, for every movie and every television show. And I loved finding those for Lost in Space and putting them in the book. And uh, that was fun. And also the cutout pictures are a lot of fun, too, that are in the book. Yeah. Uh, where they cut outs of us. Did they have a staff still photographer on set a lot of the time while you were filming? Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, they always came in. There was at that time when, you know, it was like the heyday of 20th because it was like a city unto itself. Sure. There was, you know, everything you could possibly want, you know, from the cleaners. And then there was the wardrobe department, the hair department and the portrait department. And the photographer used to go around and, and shoot you know, pictures of everybody on different sets, on different projects that were going on on the lot. I actually wrote a book called Styling the Stars, which I was so excited to kind of discover these boxes of continuity pictures in the archives of 20th Century Fox Studios. Uh, It took me two and a half years to go through those with um, Tom McLaren, who, who also, thank God, he was he had a mm. counting background, so he was able to log a lot of the stuff. But, you know, there was dust on those boxes and stuff like that and found pictures for every single movie and every single television show. There is a photographer who comes and shoots so that you'll match in the next scene. Right. 
I didn't mean to get off on that, but... No, it's a great book. It's like a coffee table size book, oh. and it's got some beautiful, beautiful photographs. It was a golden age of uh, cinema there at Fox and everything. Oh, it was. And the photographs are so high quality. They're usually a two and a quarter camera that they used to come with. And we have pictures like that from Lost in Space too. Yeah, it's great. Styling the Stars is a wonderful book and you did a great job on that, Ange. And in the old days, I would say really until the 80s, pretty much, almost every studio lot was very much like its own contained little uh, township. Mm. There's a hospital, there's security, there's every kind of machine shop and prop shop and wardrobe you know, that you can imagine to build all of these sets that they were constantly building. Right. All of the studios had vast back lots with whether they were lakes or, you know, mm. uh, mountainous air. It, it was a, a completely different era that we worked in. The studio lots now have either been sold or shrunk. Pieces have been sold off. I suppose Universal still has its main size. And the Disney lot is the only one that's pretty much the same as it was in the old days. But it was a very special time to work in television and film when the lots were kind of autonomous, you know, with their own everything. It was uh, like being in a... Yeah, Hello Dolly, New York town. I mean, you could just walk, you know, like a couple feet and you'd be in a new place. It was a great time. It was a great time. And it's almost like, you know, you had to have a passport in a way. Uh -huh. If you're under contract to the studio, any studio, then you're welcome in that world. And if you did not have a contract to be working at that studio, either as a guest artist or as a regular or as a feature film, whatever, you couldn't enter that world. You know, it was completely verboted. You couldn't get into those slots. And so I think Angela and I were kind of like the princess and prince of 20th Century Fox for a good four years or so. Angela had done Sound and Music, which was a mm. Fox film the year before Lost in Space. I had done a film called Dear Bridget with Jimmy Stewart, which was a Fox film before Lost in Space. And then we stayed on the lot in school together for another year or so after Lost in Space wrapped. So it was a, a magnificent experience to kind of uh, grow up for a while in that very special and very private little township. Very magical. Mm. And that world is gone now, isn't it? But, you know, your book documents it beautifully. And I know I'm being super greedy with your time, but I just have to get your reaction to a couple more photos. And these relate to your section titled Fire in the Hole. <laughs> And uh, this was oh, another yeah, right. mainstay of Lost in Space. Now this Ooh, That's a good one. That is a good one here. This is from season two's The Golden Man, and the war has just broken out. And you... Uh, and that was Angela, Christmas when we put up all the Christmas lights. <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. But there's a gigantic flash powder explosion going off behind you and Jonathan. And I yep. guess you're kind of acting scared, but Jonathan really looks scared there. You know, our prop guys were great. The guy who did the um, parrot, what are they called? Parrot? Uh, pyrotechnics? Uh, pyrotechnics, yeah. He only had four fingers on one hand. So he, you kind of were a little sketchy when you kind of, you know, when you'd say, okay, and then there's going to be a big explosion behind you, you know. Uh -huh. This was not CGI. We didn't even have CGI. Everything was real. And, you know, very easily we could have, you know, oh, there's Bill getting a shower of of sparks. It's really kind of amazing that we were allowed to do this sometimes. It is. Kind of yeah. In awe. It looks yeah. dangerous. It looks dangerous. It, I mean, it, it, you it know, was dangerous, I think. 
I honestly do think Lost in Space had more uh, pyrotechnic effects than any other show on television in the mid 60s. I maybe Mission Impossible, but basically we used a lot of gunpowder all the time. And as Angela was saying, I mean, that, that shot that's up there right now shows you how close we were to uh, a lot of different explosions. Stu Moody was the name of our special effects head. And Stu, I hate to correct you, Angela, but he only had three fingers on his, I, I don't remember which hand it was. Um, wow. But Jonathan Harris, two things. One, he had a great philosophy, which was never deny a stunt person a check. Mm. So if he had the opportunity to say, uh, his stunt double was a wonderful guy named Harry. And if he had handsome uh, the opportunity, Harry. handsome Harry, <laughs> if he had the opportunity to say, well, I'm not comfortable in this shot. I want Harry to do it. Uh, well, that, that meant Harry got a boost, a, a different check, another a stunt bump check. So Jonathan's philosophy was if he could pass some more money on to his a double, then he would. And I appreciate that very much. But on the other hand, Jonathan also hated being around the smoke and the fire and, right. and the loudness and, and the pyrotechnics. He really was not truly comfortable doing it when he had to be in it because of the camera. He would always go to uh, Stu Moody. Well, Moody, is it safe? And, and Stu Moody <laughs> would go like this. <laughs> like try to give Jonathan the A sign, but his hand was so mangled that he couldn't quite manipulate it to look very good. And Jonathan would just go, ah, <laughs> it's not very comforting, is it? No, it was not no, very comforting not. at all. And, you know, when we were writing the book, Bill and I reflected on the fact that the bloop who um, was a chimp, really was involved in a lot of these explosions and stuff. And I was holding that chimp and, you know, she just was rock solid. Um, she never went screaming or, you know, she didn't like attack me because she was scared to death. Uh, there she is. She actually went on to do Doc Tari. They had a mold of her face for uh, Planet of the Apes. She had a very illustrious career and bless her heart. She had to have that stupid hat on all the time, which probably really got on her nerves, but she became a very loving character. People love her. Hmm. I'm just saying. I guarantee you that in today's uh, world, there's no way they would have let us do the scenes we did with the explosions holding Debbie, the chimpanzee, because let's face it, she could have ripped our faces off at any point in time. Now, she never did. As Angela says, she was a trooper and very steady but, you know, when you're holding a wild animal and, and they don't know, the animals don't know that in, you know, 20 seconds into the shot, something right next to you is going to explode and sparks are going to fly all over you. Right. Um, I don't think kids would be allowed to do that today. I really don't. Oh, yeah, for sure. I was going to say <laughs> that you'll have to buy our book to find out the story of the llama. The, the, ah. the llama lost his job. You'll have to get our, our book, Lost and Found in Space 2. And there it's, it is. It's beautiful. Yes, wow. it is. 353 pages with a purple cover. No home should be without. <laughs> yep, that's right. Take you back and enjoy the memories. I love it when parents say, oh, and we've started, you know, because it's still on television. Um, I introduced my kids to it. Actually, my daughter sent me a video the other day that I looked at and all three of her kids are sitting on the couch with the little blankets around them and 
it's a Lost in Space episode they're uh-huh. watching. And it was so cute. And then it was like right before it went to the music and it said something, a danger, danger. And they all turned to the camera. It's the cutest little clip. (laughs) Okay, another generation. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. My co-host that I do the episode reviews with, Kurt, he's got two little daughters. I think they might be five and eight, but they're young. And they've been watching, as we've been going through the series, they've been watching the episodes. And he always gets a charge out of the fact, you know, let's face it, a lot of those monsters aren't too scary, but when they hear that music, it's good. they go run next to daddy and go, oh, something scary is about to happen. A lot of people have thought that it was Jonathan Harris's uh, personal choices that led to the show becoming more campy and more fantasy driven than and comedic than uh, the original tone of the series, which was very much adventurous and science fiction. But that really isn't true. What happened was the series originally aired at 7.30 on Wednesdays in what CBS deemed as the family hour. Right. And uh, they started getting uh, quite a bit of communication and letters from people who felt that the young kids watching Lost in Space were getting too scared. So it was a mandate from the network that said, you got to tone Lost in Space down. It's too scary for the time slot that it's in. So that was a catalyst for Jonathan shifting the character of Smith into more of a comedic character. But uh, he's taken a lot of uh, flack in a way for that over the decades. Like, oh, he was the one responsible for the tone change. And it really wasn't. It was a network mandate. Fake news. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, you know, sadly for us fans, the show did wrap after three seasons. We were all hoping there'd be a fourth. But as you tell the story in the book, Lost in Space remained part of your lives. And you've got a lot of chapters about the Lost in Space related things that you were into, the conventions, the comic books that you were doing, just a whole bunch of stuff that's also a continuation of the story. But it's so amazing, though, to me that this series has endured the way it has for 50. What are we going to be? The 57th uh, anniversary, I think, coming up in uh, September. 1965, yeah. Yeah. And and I got to say something. I, I loved Lost in Space as a kid, but I had no idea the fan base that's out there until I started doing this podcast and how there are people out there that are just diehard Lost in Space fans. What what do you think is the secret sauce that still makes it so important to so many people, Bill? Uh, you know, the arena of the show is such a, a vast area for the imagination to soar in. When you set your canvas as uncharted alien worlds with unknown beings anywhere you want to go, it's a great place to play. Um, I think there was a real special connection between the cast that resonates as real family. And you can't really cast that consciously. It it happens sometimes on a show or it just doesn't happen. It definitely happened on our show. You know, we all uh, really connected like family. And I think that that resonates on some kind of subconscious, soulful level with the audience. You know, if you're a little kid, Will Robinson and, and Penny Robinson, they're little superheroes, you know. They're great characters to say, I want to be like that. Absolutely. And, uh, and if you're, you know, if you're of an older mindset, you can see the show now for the ridiculous campy humor that Jonathan and the robot at times brought to it. And uh, you can watch it through the eyes of a child and kind of see it believably. Or you can watch it from the eyes of an adult and go, I can't believe they got away with this. It's so crazy. Uh, and again, the music endures. So, you know, I don't exactly know why it's continued to make so many people happy for so long, but I'm glad that it has. And 
And if our book can bring a little happiness and distractions from the reality prime that we're all in, that's a good thing. And I, I'm thankful that we could bring that to the world. Oh, and it what... did inspire a lot of people to get into the space program. Uh, well, I know that when Bill and I went and we watched a liftoff at, at NASA, we had so many technicians come up to us and say, your show inspired me to get into the space program. I mean, I wanted to go to space after I watched it. And we heard that and have consistently over the years heard that again and again. Mm. And I think at the time, you know, we hadn't even walked on the moon at the time. And it just sparked the idea that there were other worlds and aliens. And we're still in that same place today. We're still no closer. It's uh, maybe we are. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> I'm beginning to wonder whether there are any people that aren't aliens around anymore. But, um, it's, you know, I think that is something that always captures people's imaginations. And it's, it wasn't mindless because you kind of always wanted to know what was beyond. Yeah, now we know there's giant talking carrots beyond. <laughs> Absolutely. And celery. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's great. Mm. Well, you know, I just loved the fact that you chose for the very last page of this book, that wonderful collage of both your families together, your kids, your grandkids, everyone. Because I really think that also relates to what made the show so special. You know, we believed the Robinsons were really a family that loved and cared for each other in some pretty unbelievable circumstances. Yeah, they had that one adopted member of the family who was a bit of a pain, <laughs> but they would still give even him second chances. So I just think there was always something heartwarming about the stories in Lost in Space. And that's why I really appreciated that you added that picture at the end. You have beautiful families, by the way. And I know that has to make you proud, too. So Thank, Thank you. you. Yes. Yeah. We are very blessed, indeed. We are mm. aware of that. But, Lane, can I tell your people that have been listening to this podcast about our special offer that we came up with just for them? I was waiting for that. Please <laughs> okay. do. I'm excited. So I will tell you what we are going to offer. If you order the deluxe autographed edition of Lost and Found in Space 2, last off into the expanded edition go to angelacartwrightstudio.com it's on the first page you can click right on it and you will get a 20 percent discount wow. on this book we both have signed the book and we will <laughs> personalize it if you want you can put that into the text box but you have to put in the coupon code and the coupon code <laughs> is alpha control Okay. Ah, Alpha control. Alpha control. Alpha control. control. So only people that listen to your podcast, Alpha Control, will be able to get a special offer. And that's not all. There's more. Wait, there's more. (laughs) And there is also six trading cards that Bill and I created. And we will include that if you put in Alpha Control. Oh, wow. 20% off, you get the trading cards, and all you have to do in the coupon is put Alpha Control. I think they can personalize, put to whom? Right. Oh, that is so generous of y'all. That's a great deal, folks. So don't forget that. That's a limited time offer, though, now, right? That's only limited, only through the month of February. All right. It's a great Valentine's gift, let me tell you, for your loved one. Who doesn't want a lost in space? (laughs) Everybody. For Valentine's Day. (laughs) 
Happy Valentine's Day, dear. What? <laughs> what? Does not uh, compute. <laughs> danger, danger. Alpha controls the coupon code. AngelaCartwrightStudio.com. Got pictures there too. Got some pictures. Bill signs. He's on there also. Kind That's of scurrying great. around. Got my jewelry, my my clothing. So there you have it. We just appreciate that so much. And you know, the book is worth it at full price, I have to say, but it's a great offer. And I know all our listeners that don't already have one. Hey, buy another one because like I say, this is gonna be worth uh, maybe ten thousand dollars on Amazon in a few <laughs> in a few years. Who knows, right? That's, <laughs> when our time uh, is done. These will be worth a lot. Wow. <laughs> it's like Bitcoin. There you go. Well, I think, Bill and Angela, that is a beautiful, perfect note to end our conversation on. I want to give you guys the opportunity, if there's anything else that you've got coming up. Uh, Angela, I guess you're still doing your trips to uh, Austria with the Sound of Music tour? Well, or is God that- willing, we'll be going in May um, and for a wonderful spring in Salzburg. The trip is still on at this point, and it's going to be awesome because there's a lot of things you can do in spring. I do it every year. We go to all the places in Salzburg where we shot the movie, The Sound of Music, and I tell all the tales and the behind the scenes stories of what happened when we shot and we sing and we have a lot of fun. Um, And you can go to crafttours.com to find that trip. And also just doing my art and um, looking after my grandkids and having a blast. Awesome. That's great. And Bill, I know you and the Action Skulls put out an album I guess back a year ago or so, wasn't it? Twenty it was 2020, I think, fall of 2020. Uh, have you got any other music projects in the works right now we should be looking out for? Well, I do. Uh, Barnes & Barnes reunited for a, a brand new album that was released uh, last month. Oh, wow. Pancake Dream. And uh, there's a full 13 videos to go along with all of the uh, songs on the <laughs> album. So that's available out there on Demented Punk Records. And can't take the space out of me. I'm a producer on the uh, History Channel's Ancient Aliens series. Oh, wow. And we just started. Yeah, I've been doing that for five seasons now. That's great. And we just launched the new season. We're two episodes into the new season. So, uh, you know, that's a very fun and interesting and uh, enlightening project to be a part of. And I'm working on some other music projects here in my studio because I never go anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I love it. I love it. Everything's good. That's wonderful. And uh, definitely folks should check all that stuff out. That's very cool. I I just have to mention one other thing. And I know I'm being very greedy with your time. But when I saw you guys in Boston uh, at that convention, you put on a concert on, I think it was on the Saturday night or whatever. It was absolutely wonderful. I wish I had taped that. I don't know if someone was taping it for you. I think most of those were just your own original compositions, I believe. Yeah. And that was so many CDs. And you can get those on the on the site under the movie mall. Okay, we're going to link to everybody's websites. Yeah. Mary gave me a whole list of things that I need to put right. on the show notes. <laughs> so, like I said, folks, check all that stuff out. And don't forget about the special 20% discount on the deluxe edition of their new book, exclusively for Alpha Control listeners through the end of February. So at this point, I'll just say, Angela, Bill... Thank you so much for sharing your time with our listeners and me. Wow. You know, if you'd told a 10-year-old Lane that one day he gets to spend an hour, even virtually, with Penny and Will Robinson, I'd have said you're crazy, but here I am. What a treat this has been for me. Thank you so much. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you, Lane. All right. Yeah. I'll take thank care. You. Thank you. 
right. appreciate it all. Stay all safe. Right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. That was such a blast speaking with the warm and engaging Angela Cartwright and Bill Moomy. Now, don't forget that from now until the end of February 2022, you can get 20% off the deluxe autographed edition of their new book, Lost and Found in Space 2, using the coupon code ALPHACONTROL at ncpbooks.com. You'll find the link in our show notes below. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channels.